Welcome to the Hutchmoot Podcast. I'm Pete Peterson, and if you're wondering what in the world a Hutchmoot is, you're not alone. Well, let me give you the short version. Hutchmoot is an annual arts conference hosted by the Rabbit Room in which we gather people together around music, story, art, and faith. If you want the long version, check out the website at hutchmoot.com where all of your questions, or at least some of them, will be answered. In the Hutchmoot podcast, we're opening up the archives to share recordings of a variety of speakers and topics from years past. This first episode features someone who has been a part of the Rabbit Room since the very beginning, Russ Ramsey. Russ is a pastor in Nashville, Tennessee, an author of four fantastic books, which you can find in the Rabbit Room store. And as you'll hear in the talk we're about to play, he is a remarkable essayist and a thoughtful appreciator of art, in particular, the art of Vincent van Gogh. This session from Hutchmoot 2017 is called The Striving Artist. I'm excited to talk about this because because the story is just very compelling to me. Also, part of why I wanted to do this is because if you're an artist, if you spend any time writing, painting, making music, doing anything that is art that you're wanting to um, that you're wanting to put out into the world for other people to engage with, an inescapable component of that process is a feeling of futility, right? Is the feeling of what am I? What am I doing? Who is this for? Is this worth my time? Um, I have a friend who's a very famous songwriter, and he's in the Country Music Songwriting Hall of Fame. His name's Tom Douglas, and uh, he's uh, if you, he wrote Miranda Lambert's song "The House That Built Me." He's written all these country songs that are just amazing. He's a believer, and he uh, we were talking about songwriting um, earlier this year, and he was saying in the creative process. Uh, especially when it when it's commercial, uh, when there's a commercial component to it, the creation of the work, the the work of writing the song, is the sacred part of the process. And then once that's done and it moves into the next season, it becomes profane. So he, he said. He said. So if you give any of the sacred part, the creation, the writing, if you give any of that away to the commercial. Uh, world that follows it. You're surrendering part of the sacred part of art to the profane part of art. And he's, he's of course, coming from a major label country music world where they take your stuff and then they just do whatever they want with it. But I think there's something meaningful to what he's saying and something that I relate to, and that's that if, if we're ever creating art and the reason we're doing it is because this person might buy it or this end result might make me famous or successful... Uh, and that's what's driving us, then that flame is going to flicker and burn out probably. you know. But if the reason we're doing it is for the sake and for the love of the creative process, is, is because we're chasing after something uh, for our own sake, uh, something that we believe would be helpful and useful to the world, then that's, that's the, the, that will keep us going and growing as artists. And it'll also help us when we come up against the feeling of futility uh, and the feeling of what's it all for? Nobody seems to be uh, interested in what I'm doing. Uh, and so Vincent van Gogh's story is kind of exhibit A in the futility of the creative process. And this is because he, he sold just one painting while he was alive. And so I'm going to tell you the story about that painting 
its sale and a little bit of the context of his life where he painted it and when it was sold. And I'll show you a lot of art uh, on the slide on the screen here as we go. And then when we're done, we'll do some Q and A. Does that sound good? From Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse seven and eight: <clears throat> All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. If we are tired, Vincent Van Gogh wrote, isn't it then because we have already walked a long way? And if it is true that man has his battle to fight on earth, is not then the feeling of weariness and the burning of the head a sign that we have been struggling? Imagine Vincent Van Gogh in the last year of his life. See him buying his art supplies, mixing his colors, preening his brushes, stretching and prepping his canvases. Imagine his sketches, like recipes, lying face up on the table next to the easel. Imagine the eternal bits of color under his fingernails, on his beard, and deep in the seams of his clothes, his person an accidental painting in the same spectrum as the canvas of the day. The pace and the nature of his craft immerse him in a sensual world of color, shape, texture, scent, and composition. It is hard to tell where the man stops and his work begins. The postman's letter from five days prior, November 15, 1889, sat face down on the table by the window. Octave Mouse, the founder of the Brussels Art Expo, had extended an invitation which read, the association requests you, sir, to kindly let us know as soon as possible if you accept its invitation, as the number of these is strictly limited, and to inform us before 15 December of the notes and comments you wish to see featured in the catalog. The Brussels Art Expo was formed six, six years earlier in 1883 in response to the strict control and more commercial policies of the Paris Salon, which was the most prestigious art exposition in Europe. For over two centuries, art critics and buyers regarded the Paris Salon as the premier source of the best fine art. So many European painters became well-known in the art world because their work was displayed and sold at the Paris Salon. The Paris Salon's preeminence then made it difficult for artists and styles rejected by the Salon to break in to the public arena. So in response, Octave Mouse, an artist and lawyer, gathered a board of 10 other artists and put together an exposition of their own work. So these are kind of your indie artists. And they invited nine other international artists to show their work as well, and they called themselves the Twenty. In 1889, as the 20 began planning the 1890 Expo, they discussed artists which should round out their company, and they agreed that Vincent van Gogh should be invited, along with Paul Cezanne, Paul Signal, Henry de Toulouse-Lautre, Alfred Sisley, and Paul Gauguin, among others. Each time Mouse's letter caught Vincent's eye, he untangled the problem a little more in his mind. The orchard in blossom and sunflowers, for sure. Not the starry night, though. That's not me. Not the cypresses, either. But perhaps the red vineyard. Yes, the red vineyard. And after settling the matter, Vincent put his brush down, grabbed a piece of paper, and wrote, Sir, I accept with pleasure your invitation to exhibit. Here is the list of canvases I intend for you. Number one, sunflowers. 
Number two, sunflowers. Number three, the ivy. Number four, orchard in blossom. Number five, wheat field with rising sun. Number six, the red vineyard. All these canvases are number 30 canvases. I am perhaps exceeding the four meters of room, but as I believe that the six together thus chosen will make a rather varied color effect, perhaps you will find a way of placing them. Vincent Van Gogh, November 20, 1889. On October 2nd, 1888, one year before receiving Mouse's invitation, Vincent wrote a letter to his friend and fellow painter Eugene Bosch. This is the letter. When Vincent wrote this letter, he had no idea how seemingly passing, how seemingly passing references to Eugene's sister Anna and the vineyard near Montmahor would later be joined as an indelible and complicated part of his story. But the letter read in part, I'd very much like to ask you to do an exchange with me of one of your studies of the coal mines. Is your sister Anna also going to do miners? There's certainly work for two people there. I believe that it's very fortunate for you that the two of you both do painting in your house. Ah, well, I have to go to work in the vineyard near Montmahor. It's all purplish, yellow, green under the blue sky, a beautiful color motif. Good handshake and good luck and much success in your work. Ever yours, Vincent. The vineyard, he mentioned, became the subject of the only painting he sold during his lifetime, the Red Vineyard. And Anna, Eugene's sister, was the person who bought it. She and her brother were admirers of Vincent van Gogh's work, but even more, they were his friends. Vincent once painted a portrait of Eugene and then included that portrait as one of the paintings hanging on the wall in his well-known work, The Bedroom. You see it right there? Anna was a respected Belgian Impressionist painter, and in 1885, Octave Maus invited her to join the, as the first female board member of the 20. So if Anna's friendship with Vincent wasn't the reason Mouse invited him to exhibit at the 1890 Brussels Art Expo, it certainly influenced the board's decision. But it wasn't this friendship alone that got Vincent those four meters of exhibition space. It was his art. More than anything else, it was his talent as a painter, a gift the world was just beginning to notice that opened the door for him to exhibit and then sell the Red Vineyard. Part two, the painting. Often when people think of Van Gogh's work, their minds go to sunflowers, irises, or the starry night. But to understand the story of the Red Vineyard, we must locate it in the greater body of Vincent's art and also try to gain an understanding of the artist himself. The Red Vineyard hangs in the Pushkin Museum of Fine Arts in Moscow, along with five other canvases painted by Vincent Van Gogh. Although the Red Vineyard bears all the hallmarks of classic Van Gogh style, thick application, hatch brushstrokes, geometric outlines, it does not necessarily stand out as the flagship of the fleet in that museum, or even as the best of his five's work, five works which are housed there. Many who see the Red Vineyard at the Pushkin Museum and neglect to read the plaque on the wall beside it might never realize they're looking at the only painting anyone ever purchased while he was alive. Their gaze might be drawn down the hall to his cryptically autobiographical Prisoners Exercising After Doré, in which he paints himself right there 
into a line of inmates walking in a circle in a prison yard like inchworms on the rim of a bucket. But the details that we have about the Red Vineyard shine an interesting light on the artist's vision and process. Vincent painted the Red Vineyard on November 4th, 1888, from memory, in the space of one day. The scene depicts the annual grape harvest in southern France, known as the Vendage. Coming from Holland, the Vendage fascinated Vincent. There was something settling about the rhythm of the ingathering, humanity and land in harmony. People worked, and they enjoyed a return on their labor. One scholar wrote, these grape harvesters were people Van Gogh felt he could relate to by the fact that they were working with nature in its rhythms and not against it. The harvesters don't look haggard, but they're bathed in the warmth of afternoon sun. They're fulfilled in their work. They're part of the order of things. And Vincent thought this was beautiful, and he wished it for himself. In 1888, when he painted the Red Vineyard, Vincent was experimenting with the idea that color alone could generate an aesthetic that could capture people's hearts and imaginations. So he was studying color theory through the art and writing of George Seurat, who believed the scientific application of color was like any other natural law. Seurat believed that knowledge of how the eye and brain communicated with each other could be used to create a new language of art based on the arrangement of hues, color intensity, and shapes. In other words, he believed that there was a scientific reason for why art seemed to speak to the soul. And this resonated with Vincent, who used color not only to depict what he saw, but to make it come to life. And so to stand in front of his works today, like the Red Vineyard or the Starry Night, it proves how the vibrancy and movement of the color that he used seemed to give the work life beneath its skin. Incidentally, I got to go to the Modern, uh, Museum of Modern Art just a few weeks ago and stand in front of this painting. Yeah. And um, it's an amazing work of art. And it's also a work of art that he was embarrassed by. Uh, uh, he, he felt that he was too, he was being too abstract. And in, his, in, in a letter that he wrote, he, he acknowledged I am trying to make something commercially popular, and I kind of hate myself for it. So this, it's ironic that the painting that he is most known for is one that he is most embarrassed by. And so it, anyway, it's, it's an amazing thing if you're ever in New York City to be able to see this. Um, but when Vincent wrote about the Red Vineyard to Eugene Bosch before he painted it, and when he wrote to his brother Theo after he painted it, he spoke more about the color that he saw than any one aspect of the harvest itself. It was the color that caught his attention. Remember, to Bosch, he wrote, it's all purplish yellow green under a blue sky, a beautiful color motif. And then to Theo, two days after completing the painting, he wrote this, on Sunday, if you had been with us, you would have seen a red vineyard, all red like red wine. And in the distance, it turned to yellow and then a green sky with the sun and the earth after the rain, violet, sparkling yellow here and there where it caught the reflection of the setting sun. From memory, Vincent set out to capture the way he remembered the colors of the vintage and how they lay against each other. As it goes with so many artists, his composition was developing in his mind before it ever made its way onto canvas. 
And his correspondence shows him as a man who was always studying the world before him. He was always looking. He was always thinking. He was always imagining. He was always planning his next work. Ordinary scenes of everyday objects moved Vincent. If you know his work and you've seen his, his pair of shoes or you've seen the potato eaters, you know he has this, he just sees beauty. Here's what he said. He wrote, even though I'm often in a mess, inside me there's still a calm, pure harmony and music. In the poorest little house, in the <coughs> filthiest corner, I see paintings and drawings and my mind turns in that direction as with an irresistible urge. Vincent didn't see the world as a collection of plain, unaffected objects. He saw the unfolding drama of the human story, which to him was a heartbreaking tale. One example of how heartbreaking the world was to him can be seen in how he wrote about a bridge that he wished to paint. To Theo, Vincent wrote, I have a view of the Rhone, the iron bridge at Trinquete, in which the sky and the river, listen, are the color of absinthe, the quays a shade of lilac, the figures leaning on their elbows on the parapet blackish, the iron bridge an intense blue, with a note of vivid orange and blue in the background, a note of intense malachite green. Another very crude effort, and yet I am trying to get at something utterly heartbroken, and therefore utterly heartbreaking. For Vincent, the steel and the stone of the bridge were alive with color as he sensed in the people on the banks and crossing from one side to the other all the sorrows they carried. And the colors he saw bore that emotion and because the emotion was palpable, the colors were vibrant. The red vineyard relies almost exclusively on the color spectrum between red and yellow. This was a very deliberate challenge Vincent set for himself. In his day, the idea of painting a scene from memory based on a desire to use a particular color spectrum was backward. Many artists would just take their easel outside and their paints and they would paint what they saw. But Vincent wanted to capture what he felt as he tried to remember what he saw. This is the very nature of Impressionism. It's painting not a perfect copy of the thing in view, but an impression of it. The artist's impression of what he saw and how he felt about it. Part three, the artist. Vincent believed that although his use of vibrant color made his paintings appear less realistic, they in fact seem to look more alive. And they do. Somehow, color, composition, and subject matter combine to connect with people in ways that defy explanation. This is what art does, right? It is the mysterious, transcendent quality of art. Something in the liniment oil and pigment breaks through the plane of the canvas and penetrates the human soul in a way that suddenly and inexplicably matters. This transcendent is what compels a tourist in a museum to circle back to a particular painting she encountered that day for one last look before she leaves. She may not be able to say why, but she feels she must return. And so she does. And feeling as though she is forcing a sort of disconnection when she at last pulls herself away, she vows to remember the peace to carry it with her in the recesses of her heart. And so she does. And that work never again appears to her as an ordinary piece of art, but as part of her own collection. 
When she saw the work for the first time, it belonged to the world. But when she saw it the second time, it belonged to her. Some people carry with them entire collections of Renaissance-era masterworks by Rembrandt and Vermeer. Others can close their eyes and revisit the Impressionists of Paris, Monet, Manet, and Bazille. For others still, line after line of scripture or Shakespeare effortlessly unfold from the recesses of memory dating back to when they were children catechizing or strutting and fretting their first hours upon the stage. This is the intangibility of genius, to create work that transfers from the canvas, the page, the instrument, into the heart of another person, arousing a longing for beauty and an end to sadness. This is what Vincent wanted to create. He was trying to get at something utterly heartbroken. The art that would transfer from his easel into someone else's soul as a work of balm and healing for the broken. Van Gogh approached his craft as a pure artist. He cared about the sacred work of creation and abhorred the profane but seemingly necessary process of commercialization. He believed his unique style contributed something novel and valuable to the art world. He really did believe that. But he understood the tension artists from every generation have known, and that is that commercial success facilitates the ability to continue working. It costs time and money to make art. Money from the work he created could buy him time to make more money. And I'm sorry, could buy him time to make more art, which would then hopefully bring in more money so he could make more art. But that's the cycle, right? Vincent's motives, now don't get me wrong, his motives were not solely devoted to the work he produced. He <coughs> craved recognition deeply. This was his internal conflict. He wrote, I can do nothing about it if my paintings don't sell, but the day will come when people will see that they're worth more than the cost of the paint and my subsistence, very meager, in fact, that we put into them. His lack of commercial success discouraged him as it would anyone who has worked at something for the better part of a decade, believing it was his life's calling, without ever making a dime. Vincent was prone to depression and mental illness, perhaps displayed most infamously when he cut off his ear, or most tangibly when he spent the better part of a year in an insane asylum in Saint-Rémy-de-Provence. His psychological and mental struggles added a layer of despondency to his commercial failure. Although no one can say precisely what was happening inside of him on that July afternoon in 1890 when he surrendered to despair and pulled the trigger, there can be little doubt that a sense of professional futility played a role. To add to the tragedy of his death, when Vincent shot himself, he was closer than he could have imagined to the recognition that he so desired. He did not know that his work would soon become a staple in the Brussels Art Expo. He did not know that just 24 years after his death in 1914, his letters to Theo would be published in a three-volume set. He would have been in his early 60s had he lived to see it. He did not know that 20 years after that, in 1934, 
Irving Stone would write a best-selling biographical novel called Lust for Life based on those letters, or that 22 years after that, in 1956, Kirk Douglas would play him in a motion picture based on Stone's book. Perhaps none of these things would have happened had his life not ended so tragically, but his fame was growing in the art world even during the last years of his life. An increasing number of people who came into contact with his work presumed they were looking at a rising star. He exhibited some of his work in 1888 and drew the attention of his fellow painter, Joseph Jacob Isaacson, who wrote an article positively reviewing Vincent's work in the August 17, 1889 issue of the weekly Amsterdam paper. He was from there. Vincent was embarrassed by the attention and asked Isaacson to never write about him again. But it was too late. Word was spreading. In January of 1890, just before the Brussels Art Expo, art critic Albert Arrer wrote a lengthy essay praising Vincent's work, saying this, In the case of Vincent van Gogh, in my opinion, despite the sometimes misleading strangeness of his works, it is difficult for an unprejudiced and knowledgeable viewer to deny or question the naive truthfulness of his art and the ingeniousness of his vision. In 1891, the year after Vincent's death, art critic Octave Merbeau compared Vincent to his Dutch predecessor, the master himself, Rembrandt. Merbeau wrote, Van Gogh does not always adhere to the discipline nor to the sobriety of the Dutch master. I love how these reviewers are like, listen, we're all looking at the same thing here. We all know, okay, but, but... Van Gogh does not always adhere to the discipline nor to the sobriety of the Dutch master, but he often equals his eloquence and his prodigious ability to render life. That same year, the year after he died, both Paris and Brussels held retrospectives of Vincent's work. Other retrospectives were later shown in Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Berlin over the course of the rest of the 1890s, making him one of the most celebrated artists in Europe by the turn of the century. Had he lived just a few more years, he would have seen this happen. But for Vincent, this was all unimaginable and deeply frustrating. And the longer he went without commercial success, the more feverishly he painted. And the more canvases he amassed, the more objectively measurable his failure appeared. And so when he held the pistol in his hand in the wheat field in 1890, gathering his nerve, he did not know that the world he wanted to leave was beginning to love him as an artist. Part four, the expo. Vincent sent off his six paintings when the time came. The Brussels Art Expo arranged them as he requested. I love this part of the story, by the way. His canvases were displayed alongside works from Paul Cezanne, Paul Signat, Henri de Toulouse-Lautre, and Paul Gauguin, all painters on the leading edge of post-impressionism. Um, though Vincent himself would become the most celebrated, celebrated post-impressionist of all time, the fact that all these names were on the invite list together telegraphed that just as the impressionists of the 60s and 70s overtook the realists who came before them, the post-impressionists would soon surpass the impressionists as the darlings of European art. 
Vincent's growing acclaim was not happening in a vacuum. That's the point. He was part of a movement, and still he stood out. And one reason he became the face of post-impressionism was because his work most acutely displayed the characteristics of that era. Thick paint application, vibrant color, geometric composition, and distorted detail. Vincent employed all of these. And as it happens with any artist on the leading edge of a new era, many embraced his work as exciting and refreshing, but many others rejected it as being inferior work born of youthful swagger and no respect for the discipline of the craft. The Belgian symbolist painter Henry de Groo, who was a member of the 20, felt this way about Vincent's work. In fact, de Groo found Vincent's art so distasteful that he refused to allow his work to be hung alongside what he called the abominable pot of sunflowers by Monster Vincent. De Groo's opposition proved to be really revealing. What seemed so obvious to him that Vincent van Gogh was a hack was a view that the other members of the 20 did not share. And when later at the expo's opening dinner, de Groo called Vincent, who wasn't present, an ignoramus and a charlatan, all hell broke loose. Octave Mouse describes the scene as it unfolds. This is from his letter. At the other end of the table, Latrouze suddenly bounced up with his arms in the air and shouted that it was an outrage to criticize so great an artist. De Groo retorted, tumult, seconds were appointed. Paul Signac announced coldly that if Latre were killed, he would assume the quarrel himself. That night, the 20 expelled De Groo from the expo. He returned the next day cap in hand to apologize and was allowed to resign and withdraw his work on his own volition. Vincent had no idea any of this happened because he wasn't there. He did not know that these artists he had admired had risen to defend his honor and validate his brilliance. He did not know. Though the scandal with De Groo drew support for Vincent from other artists at the expo, those who witnessed it just couldn't help wonder in the back of their minds how his work would be publicly received. Because Vincent did not represent the broader commercial taste of the time. But Mouse and his group were interested in art that would inspire new conversations, not just satisfy commercial appetites. And Vincent's work did just that. His paintings went on to be among the most discussed at the expo. And before the event was over, Anna Bosch, a member of the 20, and the sister of Vincent's friend Eugene, purchased the Red Vineyard for 400 francs, roughly $2,000 in today's economy. Part five, the numbers. <coughs> when Vincent learned of the sale of the Red Vineyard, he wrote self-deprecatingly to his mother, Theo informed me that they'd sold one of my paintings in Brussels for 400 francs. In comparison with other prices, including Dutch ones, he was Dutch. This isn't much, but that's why I try to be productive in order, in order to be able to keep working at reasonable prices. And if we have to earn our living with our hands, I have an awful lot of expenses to make up for. A look at the sheer output and volume of Vincent's work, especially in the last years of his life, shines a 
fascinating and heartbreaking light on the nature of his genius, his productivity, and the significance of the sale of the Red Vineyard. Vincent van Gogh finished around 860 complete oil paintings during his life. I'm going to take you through some numbers, some statistics right now. Vincent finished around 860 complete oil paintings over the course of his life as a painter. During this time, he also produced another 1,240 sketches, watercolors, and prints. And then he also wrote over 900 letters, 650 of them to his brother and benefactor, Theo. All told, this comes to just over 3,000 individual works of art and writing that we know from Vincent. Now let's put those into perspective. How much time does this kind of prolific output require? For the sake of comparison, set aside Vincent's 2,200 letters, watercolor sketches, and prints, and consider only his 860 canvases. So we're just going to talk about those 860 canvases and set aside the other 2,200 things. Okay? How does that production quantity compare to other well-known painters? Well, Rembrandt produced roughly 600 oil paintings during his career, which spanned over 40 years. Claude Monet, Van Gogh's contemporary, painted around 2,500 paintings over the course of 60 years. And Paul Cezanne painted 900 canvases over a span of 40 years. So on average, Rembrandt completed 15 canvases per year. On average, Monet completed 42 canvases per year. And Cezanne, 23. Rembrandt, Monet, and Cezanne, and many others, had time on their side. They worked for decades. Vincent, however, did not. Vincent van Gogh's painting career lasted nine years, from 1881 through July of 1890. That's it. He painted from age 28 to 37. Before that, he worked as an art dealer in his uncle's firm and served as a missionary. You will not find art from Vincent van Gogh before 1881. The 860 canvases Vincent painted during his short career averages out to 96 canvases per year. By by comparison, his average annual output doubled Monet's, tripled Cezanne's, quadrupled Rembrandt's. But Van Gogh's annual average alone over those nine years does not tell the story because his output was far from consistent. Over the first half of his painting life, 1881 to 1884, he averaged 21 paintings per year. So in these years here, it's an average of about 21 paintings per year. But between 1885 and 1889, right there, the second half of his career, the number jumps to 130 canvases per year. That works out to one complete painting every three days for five years straight. This does not take into account the fact that during that span from 1885 to 1889, Vincent relocated a couple of times and had personal and medical crises that would take him away from his easel for weeks on end. The most fascinating year of Vincent's career, however, in terms not only of output but also of health, was this last year of his life, 1890, the year he sold the Red Vineyard. Vincent died on July 29th of 1890 
of complications from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the heart. That year, he produced 108 finished canvases. Although that total is 61 less than 1888, the year he painted the Red Vineyard, and 26 fewer than 1889, the 106 canvases he painted during 1890 does not represent a decline in production, but actually represents a stark increase because he died during the summer, which means he was on pace to finish close to 200 paintings that year. The monthly breakdown of his output in 1890 is even more startling. Between January and April, he painted just 16 paintings total, which means he could not have done much the following three months, May, June, and July, except eat, sleep, and paint. Between May and July of 1890, Vincent worked at a frenetic pace, and his art bears the evidence. In the St. Louis Art Museum, in the Impressionist Gallery, there is a Van Gogh from June of 1890 called Vineyard with a View of Aver. It's this painting right here. And the heavily applied paint in that lower corner over there, you can see the distinct cross-hatching of another canvas's imprint, meaning that the painting was finished and set aside in a stack of others before it was completely dry. Of course it was, because that canvas was one of an estimated <coughs> 42 that he painted that month alone. He painted another 24 that May, another 24 that July, meaning in the three months before he shot himself, Vincent painted 90 of that year's 108 paintings. A three-month average of one finished painting per day. Imagine Vincent in those last months of his life. He's a young man. He's only 37 years old, but he looks much older. See him mixing his colors and stretching his canvases and preening his brushes. His sketches, like recipes, lying scattered around the room as the gaunt artist denies himself food and makes coffee from the carbon scrapings of burnt toast so that he does not have to stop. Imagine the eternal bits of color under his fingernails on his beard and deep in the seam of his clothes, his person an accidental painting in the same spectrum as the fury of those three months. Now, add back in the 2,000 200 other watercolors, sketches, prints, and letters he composed during those nine years. And we are left with a heartbreaking picture. Somewhere in that flurry of emotion between painter and canvas was a man held captive by an insatiable appetite to capture the world he wanted while being unable to connect with the world that he had and it seemed to be killing him. And perhaps Vincent summarized his struggle best when he said, a great fire burns within me, but no one stops to warm themselves at it, and passers-by only see a wisp of smoke. What are we to do with Vincent's story? What do we make of this? 
What do we do with the seeming futility of creation, of creativity, the great burning fires in each one of us that are only perceived by others as wisps of smoke? Today, Vincent's work has its place among the most celebrated and valuable art ever created. Entire wings of museums in the greatest cities of the world are devoted to his art and his influence on other artists. It would be profane to conclude this presentation by noting Vincent's posthumous commercial success, how his portrait of Dr. Gachet sold for $82 million in 1990, 100 years after his death or how his irises went for $101 million three years before that. It would miss the point entirely to add up the value of his collection, because for Vincent it wasn't the value of his body of work that plagued him. It was the question of whether or not his time on earth would produce beauty that would transcend his days, that he would get to that utterly heartbroken thing and help it. C.S. Lewis wrote, the sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality, is part of our inconsolable secret. Nobody can say for sure why Anna Bosch bought the Red Vineyard, but it would certainly be too simplistic to say it was because she admired the painting and wanted to own it. She certainly must have liked it well enough, but she also knew Vincent's story. She knew his friendship with her brother, her friendship, his, her friendship with him herself. She knew his struggles with sanity. She knew his ongoing fight to break into the world of artists who were taken seriously, to be acknowledged, to be met with some response. She knew his inconsolable secret. Anyone close to him knew it. And his secret is our secret too. It's a secret as old as time, a question as sacred as scripture. Does my life contribute anything of value to this world, and how do I know if it does? Ecclesiastes puts the question to poetry. I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Vincent left his work to be enjoyed by we who did not toil for it. But we remember him not just for his art. We remember him for his words and for his life and for his struggle. And we do more than remember him. We relate to him. He is the striving man from Ecclesiastes, learning firsthand about the vanity of toil under the sun while trying to live and move and breathe and do his work under heaven. He chases after the sun and he never reaches it. He bears the weight of a creation subjected to futility and he longs for the renewal of all things. This is the power of art. It happens in time and space, but it points to the eternal. It takes the objects and ideas it finds lying around, the things of the here and now, and shapes and assembles them into something that belongs to a world outside of time. The trick for the artist is to believe that this is the true nature of our work, especially while we're in the process of doing it, whether it sells or not. Vincent van Gogh was no saint, and we dare not make him into one.
We should not ignore his temper, his immorality, or his pride in order to venerate him. But neither should we focus on his imperfections and iniquities and consider him damned. Because for the whole of his life, he never stopped speaking about his love for Christ. The church he could do without. But Christ, he loved. And his life and his words and his work show a complicated man who struggled with a lot of confusion, a lot of pain, a lot of anger. But he was also a man who recognized beauty and wonder and worth in people that very few others ever would. He was looking for something he would never find in this life, not because he died young, but because the glory, love, beauty, and peace that he hungered for were not of this world. They were and still are real, however, and this is why we are drawn to him. Vincent spent his artistic life knocking on the door C.S. Lewis described as a welcome into the heart of things. And the promise of the gospel is that for those whose faith is in Christ, which seemed to be the case with Vincent, that the door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. In Vincent's art, we sense, we sense the eternal glory blazing on the other side of the door. And we long to behold it as more than the wisps of smoke that we see. Annie Dillard said, beauty and grace are performed whether or not we will sense them. The least we can do is try to be there. Sometimes the work of the artist is simply to knock on the door of glory and whenever possible to siphon little wisps of smoke from those places where we catch a glimpse of the light so that others might see them and wonder what's there. Perhaps one of the greatest, Vincent's, Vince, greatest gifts Vincent gave was the conviction that this world in which we wait is not ugly or empty. It is alive with color and texture and wonder. And he has helped us see it. When we look into the night sky, we see the stars swirl. When the irises rise and unfold, we're reminded that there is life in what the winter months seem to destroy. When the dew settles on the field of poppies, we see it as illuminated with a million little lights. And if you're ever in the south of France, in the autumn, you too may lift your eyes and see it. A red vineyard, all red like red wine. And in the distance, it turns to yellow. And then a green sky with the sun, the earth after the rain, violet, sparkling yellow here and there, where it catches the reflection of the setting sun. Hutchmoot Podcast is brought to you by the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. Special thanks to Andrew Osinga for the use of his song, Perihelion One, from his amazing record, Leonard the Lonely Astronaut.